Pedagogo, the podcast for anyone and everyone in higher education. In today's episode, we'll speak with the creator of an online collective that connects those in higher ed across the country and around the world. Learn how the group has evolved since its creation and some considerations for creating similar collectives. Pedagogo, brought to you by ExamSoft, the digital assessment solution that gives you actionable data for improved learning outcomes. When assessment matters, ExamSoft has you covered. I am so happy to have here with us Dr. John Broom. Hi, John. Hi, how are you doing? Good. Thank you for being here. It's, it's my pleasure. <laughs> uh, we are, we are going to actually have a conversation about this amazing collective that he has, he and I think a team put yes. together um, during the pandemic. It's a Facebook group called the Higher Ed Learning Collective with over 40,000 members, John. Was that, was that a right? I looked it up today. I think it's 41,000 now. Nice. Okay. And so we're going to talk about how this community came to be and the purposes that it serves and what we can learn from this big inter-institutional, probably intercontinental collective and what, how we can bring that back into our institutions to create community. So again, thank you, John, and welcome. Um, my first question to you is, could you tell us the backstory of how this higher ed learning collective came to be and where it is today? Um, so what's interesting is the idea for the collective came from my observations from Malaysia. Okay. I was actually on spring break and in Kuala Lumpur, my wife was giving a talk at a medical conference uh -huh. and I was watching universities close on the West Coast from Asia this and was in 2020, March. This is in March 2020. Wow. Um, so I was cleared. We were cleared to go to Malaysia. Um, the, the pandemic was already in Asia. Mm -hmm. From afar, I started watching universities on the West Coast close. Um, and you can start to see this cascade happening. When I got back, I, I did this thing called quarantining or self-quarantining, which people thought was weird. Uh, right. When I got back to campus, um, I, I literally had my students uh, put a laptop in the room. All my students came to class and I was online at home. Um, right. And then by Thursday, university closed. Right. Um, no, knowing that so it, it was March 11th. 2020, I'm sitting on my couch watching the news of all these universities closing, and I'm very active on social media, Facebook specifically. I'm connected with almost 5,000 people on Facebook across universities, internationally, across disciplines, and I honestly, it was just, I thought to myself, wouldn't it be cool if we had a group where we all could help each other? So it was me sitting on a couch, uh, enjoying a glass of wine, right. um, and thinking to myself, how cool would it be to connect all of my Facebook friends in some sort of group that we could help each other with this? Uh, and part of it was, um, I've never made a Facebook group before. I wasn't even really in Facebook groups. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, the original name of the group was the 2020 Online Learning Collective. Okay. And it was very specific towards let's finish the semester and finish how to do this together. And I wanted a space, honestly, that was just pulling from all of our different expertises across higher education, but really pulling from teacher education. Uh, right. Because I've been trained in online and hybrid pedagogies. A lot of my friends across the university and other universities aren't. People mm -hmm. had lots of questions. Um, mm -hmm. And so originally it was just, how can we get together and do this for free and help each other? And so over the years, you know, I've been on Facebook for, I don't know, since it started, you know, and mm -hmm. I had access to it. Um, I've constantly added interesting people and friends of right. friends and different friends of friends, people who I agree with, people I disagree with often. Of course, regardless of intent, you always create your own silos, right? Your own echo right. chambers. But there's a lot of space in there for people to push each other's thinking. So not everyone I'm friends with is in higher education, right? You have people who are, you know, servers in restaurants or work mcdonald's or her social workers people across industries and classes and identities i just find really interesting and so what's always interesting for me is how some of my friends became friends who would never talk to each other in different circumstances or the like one of the big things about that for me is understanding how we build similarities through our differences um, which is really the way i teach yeah that's and beautiful so yeah 
similarities through differences. That was the question that I was going to ask you right there, but we'll, we'll get to it. Okay. And so then you started the group. Like on my phone, I learned mm -hmm. how to do this through their mm -hmm. app. And um, part of it is, you know, there had been more pushing because Zuckerberg has been pushing Facebook groups and Facebook has been pushing <laughs> making groups. And this just happened to be happenstance, right? Um, mm -hmm. And so I made a group and then I just posted it on my wall. And then so people started adding it. Oh, that's pretty cool. And then people started sharing it. And I was like, uh, I did not think this would happen. Um, right. You had not set it to be a private group. You had just set it to be a public group. I, I yeah. set it to be a public group, which is incredibly controversial. And mm -hmm. I still believe it should be a public group. Right. And part of that is nothing is private. Right. And so if nothing is private and anything could be shared or screenshot, maybe you shouldn't say it or post it. Right. right. Maybe those are private conversations and this space should be a professional space to talk about things. It's not right. a ranting space. This is not YouTube comments, right? right? This is a space for us across higher education and those outside of, and those who believe in supporting higher education. Mm -hmm. How do we have professional conversations together, right? right. That are productive. Right. So let me actually go back now to go forward. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> So by day three, there was already 3,000 some people who had signed up for the Facebook group. <laughs> I was like, oh, this is getting out of control. And so I literally made a post for Zoom and I had used Zoom for research before, so I was comfortable with it. I was like, anyone want to come who wants to help me with this? I need help. I don't know where this is going, what we're going to doing. All I know is I wanted to make a space for us to work together on making the transition to online, virtual, or some forms, hybrid learning. Right. Um, and so a number of people came. There were primary people, because this is a collective. It, it is not my group. It is a group that was made by other people. I want to say some of their names because they deserve space and recognition for all the hard work they put into this. Absolutely. Um, so uh, Lydia Kitts, Drew Kemp, Ian O'Brien, Corinne Hyde, Eric of Binga Lee, Kirsten Green, uh, Crystal Howe, Joaquin Munez, Freddie Hunter, and Stevie Johnson um, awesome. were a large part of the creation of this entity, this thing. A big shout out to all of you. Thank you. <laughs> I have benefited from this collective. So personally, yeah. That's wonderful. That's, that, that is wonderful <laughs> to hear. Um, well, because, and we'll talk about it. There are good things about this and there are bad things about this. And there mm -hmm. are things that are helpful about this and things that are not helpful about this. And I've seen the roller coaster that it's been two years since it started. What really sparked my, I guess, aha of like, this is something different than I thought it was going to be, was there were a number of Australians who were posting about the name of the group. Because, of course, we know geography, it's mm -hmm. not spring 2020, it's autumn 2020 in Australia. Mm -hmm. And so they're saying, well, your name isn't equitable across the globe. Mm -hmm. And that's fair, right? right? Which I totally thought this would be small and mostly U.S.-based and some maybe European friends of mine. And it started reaching out to be something much bigger. Right. And so that's actually the first time the names changed three times. Okay. Um, so the first time it started as the spring 2020 online learning collective. Mm -hmm. And then as mm -hmm. the semester started to wane out, it just became the online learning collective or the OLC, Okay, which was great, except OLC is the name of a very other popular yes, organization. The online learning <laughs> consortium. Yes. Who is a wonderful organization and actually during the pandemic supported our collective. That's um, wonderful and so, it, which mm -hmm. we were very happy with. But then it became well, if we're really going to be long term, if this really is for sustainability of our conversations across higher education, mm -hmm. we probably need to change our name again. Okay. Um, which was a thing because people liked OLC. We made a logo. People loved the logo. They wanted like pins for their, their backs or conferences and stuff, which is super like, it's kind of cool and flattering. Yes. <laughs> and so the last time we changed the name, which is the name it still is, and part of it is just for brevity, is the Higher Ed Learning Collective. Right. And there was a lot of discussion about changing the name and what it should be inclusive of. Mm -hmm. um, some people wanted the Faculty Learning Collective, while I understood that, and I understand that perspective, what actually happened was this collective was used by librarians and mm -hmm. staff and provosts 
and presidents and mm -hmm. all people outside of just the faculty perspective or experience, but right. really across higher ed. And so, and, and be mindful, there were a number of other, they're not rival groups or competitive groups, other groups starting at the same time. And they're often mm -hmm. led by one person. And uh, mm -hmm. for many of them, they burned out really fast um, right. in terms of organization and communication and focus. Um, mm -hmm. And I worried ours would too, which is why I really pushed for help in terms of people having roles and being supportive of this and the like. One thing I wanted this to be is focused on the experiences of those in higher education. Right. We had discussions. Do we allow in K-12 educators? Mm -hmm. I am a teacher education professor. Mm -hmm. And my answer was, yes, they do not have a space they should come to. And so part of that was folks need to understand that this is the focus is higher education. We're going to have higher education conversations. We're not going to sidebar on other conversations for which there were organizations working on these issues outside of higher ed in K-12 or the like. Um, but higher ed needed a space for this. Because um, right. as you know, Higher ed doesn't talk to each other a lot. We yeah. have within an of, institution and interinstitutionally too. Yes, right? yeah, it, it's a huge problem mm -hmm. that we have the organization of administration and faculty and staff and libraries and teaching centers and all these entities, mm -hmm. even within the same school, and you right. never talk to each other. And oftentimes, right. you talk at each other. Right. right. And there is like a caste system of the pedigree of people and where the degrees are from or their stature. There is the inner war of faculty between, you know, between tenure track and adjunct and visitor and visiting and all these different disparities. Right. Well, now, why don't we all just start talking with each other instead of at each other? And part of this was how about we build a little bit of empathy in the process? Right? right, to start learning the experiences of the challenges of like funding with our libraries and our supportive staff. Start understanding the experience of the increasing pool of adjuncts and instructors right. and how they are treated and how they're funded and how they are scheduled and not rescheduled. Mm -hmm. Right, And so really it was a space of, yes, let's talk about how to use Zoom. How do you, how right. do you teach with podcasts? How to right. use all these different applications, right? right. But the one rule I had from the beginning that, and we debated and talked about this, then everyone who started the collective was on board with, it was no one can sell anything in the site, mm -hmm. right? And so other groups like, you know, Canvas can come in, other groups can come in. Cool. You can't sell stuff. You can help us for free, but this needs to be a process by which there is an equity across access within the group, not pitching stuff. But what if you had a space that is someone like Ash Jeeves, for some of us in the older crowd, right. right? where you literally can come in and ask about instructional questions, assignment questions, assessment questions. How do I do this right. on my Canvas site? You know, How do I do this in Blackboard? And have people respond who have the time to respond and hopefully create a productive, safe space to do it that is not challenging or ad hominem or tacking and the like and all this all sorts of that stuff happens too right. that you have to deal with i think what i appreciated about the group over time i've been in the group i think for a year or so now but what i've appreciated again is that it it exposes like people are willing or able to be vulnerable right in exams sure. of we did a research study about a year ago in 2021 one year into the pandemic about how has the pandemic impacted learning, right? And what sure. we constantly found was people said, oh, we've had a lot of training. We feel like we've had a lot of training, mm -hmm. but we don't know how to use it still. We feel like we still don't know where to go when we have questions. We still don't feel ready to use technology the way it should be used um, from a scope perspective as well as from a depth, you know, a sure. comprehensive application perspective. And so it was nice to come into this space where people would do a step-by-step they would share, these are my tricks and tips. And wait, like, I don't know how, how to do this. Can you all guide me? And then you'd have 20 different ways of doing that, right? Yeah. And so in the higher ed space where we often worry about coming across or not wanting to share that we may be imposters, like we don't know everything that sure. we should know. Sure. Um, we're scared to be a little vulnerable. I found that this space was a space where you could ask and people were actually helpful, not judgmental, mostly, um, but but helpful, right? Um, yeah. So that was that was wonderful to see. That has been wonderful to see. 
So there's there's obviously always judgment in in some ways. <laughs> yes. Um, and to to the degree that we've had several moderators over the years, and so mm-hmm. to the degree that we can either rein in conversations or address things, I moderate a lot, and mm-hmm. um, it's typically when someone makes a comment that you're just like, whoa. Mm-hmm. I I go back and I look up when they join the group. And often it's been the last few days. <laughs> and uh-huh. before a few hundred people jump on board their comments, <laughs> I or others try to make a very polite reminder of the kind of space this is. And this is not one of your Facebook groups or this is not the comment sections um, right. that we, we have these kind of conversations here. And you're welcome to have them and, and challenge folks with evidence or experience, right? Uh-huh. Um, but it is, it is not the kind of space where we're just gonna go after people. Right, and framing it, so written communication, right? Framing it in a way that is receivable and framing it in a way that conveys empathy, the empathy that you are talking about, right? So whether something triggers you, how can you respond to it or guide someone's thinking or challenge someone's thinking in a way that that can be respectful still? Right, right, Right. which is hard for some people who may not, who've never been, let's say someone is a tenured faculty member at a prestigious university, Mm -hmm. and they've never been talked to like that before. Someone probably wouldn't respond to one of their maybe more direct comments at a conference or something. Well, right. this this space, no, someone is going to speak up, and they could be a grad student, they could be right. a, they could be another staff member, and so that's where what's interesting with this as kind of interstructural, intrastructural, that mm-hmm. some of these conversations never really existed before. Right. That I I hope people can glean parts of this from to make sense of in their own experiences in higher education. Maybe what the other person across from the table or the person who was never invited to the table, mm-hmm. uh, their experiences are, and but also then challenge their own thinking or how they work within the higher education sphere um, yeah. to make it more inclusive for other people. So as I was listening to you, what came up for me is this idea that the power that is there is kind of dissipated. It's removed. The power differentials in the equation are removed. And so then people are actually able to converse and bring in different points of view to say, you have this perspective and I have this perspective and we can agree to disagree or we can agree or we can learn from each other and grow and come to a mutual understanding. And that, I think, is a powerful space, which goes back to your intention when you started this group, right? Yeah, it really is. And, you know, how do we work with and learn from each other as opposed to talk at each other? There are so many people who contribute so many wonderful posts and comments who have never been asked at their own universities, who have never been seen as an expert, who know the ins and outs of pedagogy, and they're not a teacher education professor, right? Who know all these sorts of experiences with teaching through like art integrative instruction, and they're not an art professor, right? But also like this is a space where they, to which degree they want to participate, and most people just watch and don't comment or don't react because um, we can look at the analytics on that side too, kind of see like how many people actually use the site. Um, is you have so many people who have so many good ideas and good intentions, and there's no space for them to help anyone. And it, it could be at two o'clock in the morning and you can't sleep because you're working on a paper and you go on, on the group and you're like, oh, I know the answer to that. Let me help them out real quick right. um, with that. And, and so that's, that's kind of the cool side of part of it is, is you have so many people without the alphabet soup behind their name who do incredible work who right. are not PhDs or EDDs or MFAs, and they don't need to be. They have great ideas and great experiences and across and within higher education at their university and other universities. People should listen to them and learn from them. They just haven't right. been asked yet because they're not on stage and they're not getting paid an honorarium to give a talk. So what you said is so amazing, again, for people to share their expertise their innovative ideas and come in a space together where they can learn together, which is what I think we're talking about today, right? The whole idea of community and learning together. We've already shared the importance of having this community where folks can learn from each other, where where there is no power differential necessarily, where people can challenge, question, share best practices. Um, what are some challenges to building and sustaining this community given your experience? And how do you build and sustain it when there's so much difference as well? You said similarities across difference, right? Um, How do you manage that? So I think part of it to understand how to build and maintain 
communities like this goes a little bit into the timeline of how it began and then how it changed mm-hmm. um, and the challenges with that. So for those folks who joined the group um, towards the end of summer 2020, saw a very different group than it was previously. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was really interesting about the way it started, it was kind of like a Sims world mm-hmm. um, by which we had we had all these conversations, but we also would webcast out talks. Uh, we also would um, create small spaces for like, you know, people finishing their dissertations. Who needs help with practice for the defenses? Who wants people to come to the defenses virtually? Who needs help with, you know, finishing out their semester and getting through all their grading? Um, and right. so there's, there are all sorts of levels of supportive spaces mm-hmm. of, of trying to figure out how can we kind of recreate because to the degree, we would share each other's commencement videos or, you know, because no one's coming to my commencement. And so commencements wow. were virtual, right? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you had students who'd worked so hard for their graduate degrees or doctor degrees, but right. no one was coming to their Zoom commencement. We tried to, as best as we could, kind of create space for people to like help each other and just like be there for each other. It was kind of like a circus Mm-hmm. Um, and there was, there was a lot of moving parts. I was too well into it as like a circus leader or like a ring leader and all of this. Um, and, um, I, I, in the beginning, I, I probably had way too much fun with it, but no, it slowly changed, um, in good ways and in bad ways. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the closer we got out of the semester or towards the end of the semester in 2020, mm-hmm. you could see the growing frustration in posts and comments. You could see... Um, how stressful people were. You can see how yeah. tired people were. And there was a lot of push towards negativity. Right. Um, and one of the things that came up was something that I am not about is I don't believe, in, I do not believe in shaming students. And so there was a lot of counter discussions about, you know, it's on the syllabus comments or memes and stuff in like student shaming and everything like that is so old, like that's so tired to the degree I would make jokes like that's so 2019, like we cannot just keep doing this because it's not beneficial to have shame or fear in instruction. Right. It, right. It's, it's not beneficial, but right. you could see towards the end of the semester, people were like done. So uh-huh. number, numbers did drop, you know, kind of after, because some people just use this, and, it, and that's, you know, the point of it, as a, I need help getting through my instruction in the semester, and the semester's right. over, you're not teaching summer school, cool, I'm turning this off, everyone is quarantined, we're all stuck at home, I don't need this anymore. Because, I mean, we have to be mindful that the collective has not always been a safe space for everyone, right? right? And Absolutely, so, any space, Right. Right. And so there are all sorts of challenges with that. And that really kind of shown itself um, as we got towards the protests of the summer um, with George Floyd. And so Mm -hmm. um, there was a lot of tension within the group. And part of it is not everyone wants to talk about equity. Not everyone wants to talk about social justice issues. Mm -hmm. All of us who are helped leading the collective, that is our background and that is our core. Right. right. And so when conversations started veering different ways, a number of people in the group don't want to talk about that because they're not comfortable with it. And that's not the purpose of the group, which I understand. But maybe that should be part of the discussion in higher education as to why some faculty members of color and the like are on so many committees and so overburdened and so overtaxed by their institutions and the requirements for accreditation. Absolutely. Why, why don't we talk about some of these barriers we have in this space as we're witnessing the disparity and inequities of those in the protests in the streets, mm-hmm. right? And so there were evolving conversations that would happen. And as part of this, some people, some people needed to leave or wanted to right. leave. So a lot of people didn't want to have these conversations. Mm-hmm. And for many of the moderators and myself included as the one responsible for this. Right. We were not ready to have the conversations and be able to protect everyone. Right. And so that is a challenge of moderation of mm-hmm. any space, let alone at that time, it was 20 some thousand. Now it's 41,000 mm-hmm. is equity. Isn't an officer in a building. Equity right. is the protection and the experience of the most vulnerable human in a space. 
Yes. Right. And so that was so beautifully put. Um, <laughs> <laughs> That's part, that was that was so beautifully put because in any space, right? Right. It is about the most vulnerable person in that space. A challenge within mm-hmm. this space is as someone with the highest algorithm, mm-hmm. I'm still centered as a white male as mm-hmm. my identity. Right. right. In terms of power and structure and the like. And for many of those working within the collective, within our structured leadership circle, mm-hmm. many of us are also white, though of other genders, other identities, and other orientations. There is this burden that's really hard to make sense of and, and push through. And I, I blame myself for a lot of this. And, and, and I take ownership of it, which is it's the same burden as the faculty member who is overtaxed on the committee as a black female. Right. Which is, yes, we need moderation and moderators. Mm-hmm. We need people to be able to identify, understand the nuances of racism and sexism and ableism. We need to understand how to capture spaces of gaslighting, right? Mm-hmm. And the identity of moderators matters in that space. And we would have calls for people across identities to help be moderators and Mm -hmm. a lot don't want to do it. And I don't blame them. Right. right? And so there's this, there's this challenge of it is a, we're damned if we do and damned if we don't, but those, those as moderators and those myself included, I'm not the victim. The person who was attacked on the Facebook wall is the victim. Right. right? And so as part of this is there's always an appearance thing. And so for as much as many of us across the collective who help build it or maintain it would reach out to their spaces to find other people to help moderate, that's something they got to deal with every day at work through right. microaggressions, through, through not being awarded institutional grants, to being forgotten to be part of, of committees or task forces or really purposeful, important things in and outside institutions, but also in their own national organizations. Right. Why would they want to do it here too? Right. right? In, in a different way. I don't want them to be on the front line of this. Yes. Where, where they're on the front line of all those other things. Absolutely. Right? And so mm-hmm. I, I do take ownership of that. And honestly, that was very taxing for me, but I'm not the victim. Right. right? And so I would get all sorts of direct messages from people who are upset or leaving the group. And some people of color rightfully leading the group. If mm-hmm. I don't feel safe here, I need to go. And I, right. I, and I apologize. And if that's what you want to do, we're trying to do the best we can. And I understand why you're leaving. And I'm sorry you were victimized. And I will do the best I can to make this better. Right. But there's only so much that people can do to try to make it better. Right? right. And so, and that's actually something in terms of where this group is going. So right. after, after that time, and it wasn't, I don't think it was a bad thing after that summer, it became more natural. The conversations people naturally wanted to have as part of the academic calendar of starting the year, changing their syllabus, new software, new modalities, as opposed to, you know, we're going to webcast a a talk on this and we're going to push this, you know, kind of stuff. Or we want to do things like, you know, um, that people don't necessarily want to do. And I understand. Right. Right. But as part of that, even now, I am reconsidering and, you know, there has not been a lot of discussion amongst the creators of this in a long time mm-hmm. because we, we net left it naturally to moderation. We have considered uh, turning off the group more than once mm-hmm. um, just because if there's not the um, human power to moderate and protect and guide and delete uh, mm-hmm. There's so many things on there, all sorts of, of uh, entities trying to get in. And we had to create, we had to change and nuance along the way is now, you know, we're, we're hitting summer 2022. And, right. you know, part of it is the group has changed. It's not just online learning. And one of the reasons we also had to change the name from online learning collective to the higher ed online learning collective is because people thought we were for online learning. I'm not for online learning. I'm for hybrid pedagogies. I, you mm-hmm. need to know face-to-face, hybrid, in-person, virtual, remote, hip-hop pedagogy, whatever mm-hmm. those pedagogies are, right? Mm-hmm. And so it, this is not an organization or group who is pushing the agenda for online solutions and online education. It's not what this right. is at all. Right. It would have been different if I called it the virtual learning collective, 
right. because then people probably would have understand, oh, we're just talking about this virtually. Okay. But as, as the organization has kind of changed, then maybe we need to talk about certain things and push other things. Maybe we do need to have, you know, book clubs. Maybe we do need to have um, featured speakers. Maybe we do need to have, there was talk a long time ago on the backside of this of we should start a journal about liberation and higher education. Mm-hmm. We should start our own forms of publication that we can house and peer reviewed and it would look different than the traditional model and timeline of a journal. Right. Uh, and so, and we started looking towards that. Um, and we started making stuff in the beginning and then we paused and said, so many other people are making like amazing things. Right. Why don't we just, why don't we just push their podcasts? Why don't we just support what they're doing? Right. right. Because we can't send ourselves in all of this. I was actually talking to a fairly prestigious author about would they be interested in an idea like this, like a more of an international book club with their new book and their pedagogy they're presenting, Um, that we have more of an international scale. Now, you know, obviously I want things to be free, but also Mm -hmm. there's amazing people and people should be paid for their time and their work, right? Right. One of the problems in our education is how much we do for free as part of our job. And we got to pay to go to our conferences and right. our registrations. Like, so, but how, and this is something I want to do more democratically, as opposed right. to the way it was originally structured as, what if we had a supportive group? What if we had another committee um, who, who worked together to figure out what should we be sharing of research and authors that's focused within higher education, that still focuses on instruction and pedagogy? Right? right? How can we still learn from each other across this, but learn across, you know, the avenues and the directions of more equitable practices, more, okay. more student-focused practices, more not alternative practices, but like what could be more mainstream or how you can do stuff differently when you teach. And so right. that's kind of the direction I'm considering talking to others, those who worked with us in the past, those who haven't, of what if we use this a little bit more educationally as we should, as we're going into more quote unquote normalized times in still in a mm-hmm. pandemic of, right. of how we improve our practices. It could be our institutional teaching. It could be our research. It could be our epistemologies and ways of thinking differently, but there are all sorts of things we could still do from the president to the staff member, from the right. librarian to the faculty member, that we right. could still learn from each other across countries and across disciplines. It sounds like there's one unifying goal is to just create the space where people can learn and share. It sounds like the challenges that you faced basically had to do with folks coming in with differences, with different points of view and differences in terms of their ability to feel safe, as well as their ability to interact in a respectful way. So you talked about some of the challenges that you face as you all are running this group. One is differences, different experiences of the same situation that people may sometimes feel attacked or feel silenced. And especially if it's an equity issue where folks of color uh, or folks already oppressed by other isms are already, you know, experiencing this in real life. They don't need to come to a group and again experience it. And they shouldn't be the bearers of the mantle of having to educate and correct and everything, right? And so you take that on. So you talked about how important moderation is and how important that foundation of equity and equitable way of being is to create and sustain a group, right? You said all of you in the group who lead this group together as a collective have that value of equity. So that that's a huge, 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 like that makes me feel better as a person of color. You know, when I think about participating in this group, I say, okay, there's someone who is committed to this kind of thinking and work. I don't have to be the one to always educate or to always correct, or you know, I don't have to engage in that way. There's someone else who'll take that lead and, and do what needs to be done. Um, the second thing that you talked about, so one was moderation and then how do we sustain a common goal? And it sounds like over here, what's nice is this naturally evolving common goal of learning, right? Whatever right. learning that may be, however, wherever that learning phenomenon may be, it may be in how do you calendar your activities or how do you do this online or how do you, what are you hearing about these policies that are coming up? But it's a way again for people to have these conversations that in traditional higher ed, you really couldn't, like you would have like the hallway conversation of tell me what you do and then you maybe get like one example versus over here, you have 15 different examples. So if you could speak to 
the makeup of the group and what it represents or what the representation is in the group? Sure. So I actually ran some numbers today of the past 60 days because mm-hmm. unfortunately with um, Facebook data, you can only go back that far. Um, so uh-huh. I, can, I, I can actually speak to the general makeup of the group, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so of the 41,000, um, the top two countries are the United States and Canada. And of that 41,000, they make up around 34,000 of it. Okay. Um, and so you have mostly English-speaking first countries, um, followed by United Kingdom and Australia. Um, mm-hmm. Then what's interesting is we have the Philippines, Vietnam, India, Cambodia, and Mexico. You'll see countries across Northern Africa and Asia um, as part of this. And when we think about age and gender, mm-hmm. what is very interesting for this, and I wish I had the data going back two years because I would want to see the trends of change over time with maybe age Mm -hmm. and gender, um, Mm -hmm. is this is primarily used by folks ages between 24 and 54 Mm -hmm. who are white females. And so that's the majority user. And so the male identified user, and this data is pulled from how you've identified yourself with Facebook. Um, right. So whether you identify as a woman or as a man, and obviously if you do not, um, if you do not believe in the the bifurcation of gender and you want to customize your own gender, um, right. you can do that too. Um, and there's a small percentage with customized gender, um, mm-hmm. but it's mostly an organization currently used by English speaking white people across mm-hmm. English speaking countries. Right. That's been a common thing since the beginning. Um, mm-hmm. One thing that's interesting with the populations or the cities, they're mostly major cities that are used. Um, but what's fascinating is it'll be like New York and like LA, but mm-hmm. then it's Bloomington, Indiana. What's there? Mm-hmm. Indiana University. Right. Right. And so mm-hmm. you'll see the spaces of like a major city and then like college towns. Right. right. It's like Absolutely. who's actively using it. And the fun thing about Bloomington is they've always been top five for using the site um, since the beginning. And so you'll have a you'll have a spattering of theirs. And then within the rankings, like number eight in terms of cities is in Cambodia. It's really interesting. Our, so and that's part of what's interesting with how this kind of spread, because mm-hmm. immediately after it started, mm-hmm. other people started picking it up. And we were recommended by university libraries and librarians. We were recommended by UNESCO in like week two as an example of how to collaborate in education. Nice. Um, nice. We, we were, um, so as part of this, you had all sorts of formal recommendations. You would just like Google like our first two names and we'd be on university sites, library sites. Um, and then it was, which was kind of weird. Um, it was the, a few of us were asked to be on. It was a small TV station in Georgia who wanted to do a story on how professors are trying to make sense of what to do. We were in LinkedIn. We were discussed in the Chronicle of Higher Education. But it's something that was interesting that it just kept spreading. And what we learned was it was university newsletters. Mm -hmm. It was university listservs. And it was shared within departmental meetings, the university. Yeah. And so that's how it kind of spread a little bit. Right. And what it sounds basically from all the recognition that you've been receiving, I think what it sounds to me like is there is this need, right, in higher ed for folks to be able to talk across disciplines, across roles, and across institutions, and even within institutions to some extent, where they can be vulnerable and ask questions and learn together. And there hasn't been a space like that in the past. There are additional spaces now that have come up with COVID, but there are in spaces where you could say, I am trying to do this and can you help me and get like 50 different responses from people saying, here's one option to try. I would do this and I would do this, right? Um, and do it in a way that's constructive and do it in a way that's even timely, right? right? And so it sounds, when I think about traditional pre-pandemic ways of being for higher ed, you may or may not in your discipline have a listserv. Uh, you may or may not be able to pose a question that would get an immediate response on a listserv. There will be a lot of silence possibly, right? Where it's not immediate, right? The, the response right. rate over here is immediate. Someone will like, someone will not like, you know, you'll have a reaction immediately, pretty much. And then you would go to conferences to have these kinds of conversations that you're having now. You'd find that one-off once a year event and you'd go there and you'd try to soak it all in versus over here you can 
go in and search any topic in that group and find all the posts related to that topic and then learn from those posts. So that's all condensed in three days. Like right. you're doing all, all that. And then as we know from professional development studies, we use like 3% of it. Right. Exactly. When we go to all these conferences, absolutely. So do you have any other thoughts or messages to share for higher ed folks in terms of should they be taking this, looking to this model to be transferring it or scaling it down or replicating it within their own institutions in some ways? Sure. So I think of it as a theoretical model more than a software model. Oh, that's very interesting. Uh, So my background in teacher education really is social learning. Mm -hmm. I am fascinated by communities of practice theory Mm -hmm. and how people work together with a common goal without a timeline to solve, resolve, and improve situations. Right. Right. And so I'm also interested within that within, um, I believe it's called situated peripheral learning, Mm -hmm. uh, which is all the little things you learn in the process of the conversations in the group work, in the comments and the chats, right? Right. And so under that frame, I think anyone can make whatever they want to make. You just have to figure out what the purpose is. Is this something you want to do within your department in Slack or -hmm. in Discord? What platform works for you? I mean, the one limitation of a Facebook group is you have to be on Facebook. And a lot of people are not on Facebook. Some people that I'm, I'm real life friends with joined Facebook to join the collective to work right. on stuff. Right. And so, you know, part of it, I think, is one, what is your purpose and goal? And then two, what is your medium? What space do you need to do this? And part of it is it could be physical space. We meet in a conference room on Fridays during lunch to talk about this once a month. It could be virtual space, you know, and so or it could be other software platforms. And so um, and then. Here's the thing you have to think about is you're creating boundaries and, and bounds of what this is. And does it have an end date? Some right. things need to start and some things need to end. And, you know, the, the one thing with this collective is regardless of my involvement or other people's involvement, it just keeps going. Right. right. It, people, people have questions. People want help with assignments. People have challenges with student situations. They don't know what to do. And right. one of the things that you spoke to, which was really interesting is, Let's be honest, our grind when we do work often is at like three in the morning or like four in the morning when we're working on assignments or things and we have questions and no one is going to respond to our emails. But you could have a space like this where someone in Cambodia, you know, it's the middle right. of their day and they're right. like, I have an idea for this. And so that's kind of the neat thing is it's this, this has not only removed the boundaries of, of the class system within higher ed and across different entities within higher ed, it also is over time zones, right? So, yes. and, and its purpose is not like this is an instant guarantee. If you have a question, here's an answer. But oftentimes someone is on it who's awake, right? right? And may have an idea or an answer. Oh, you know what? I don't know how to do this, but... This group has great websites. Here's a good resource. If you go here, you may be able to find it. And if anything, that could be all you need to get what you need done. So whatever your task force or your college or committee wants to do, you have to figure out what it is and what the purpose could be. Because the replication of this may not be the best for you, may not be the best idea for you want to do, but it could be on another software platform or another meeting space or whatever. Right. And I think what comes up again for me when you're talking about this is also, so you t- we talked about time not being a barrier. We talked about power differentials not being a barrier. We talked about um, um, the idea that you could get immediate feedback. But it's also that everyone doesn't have to be in the same place at the same time. But you could join in a conversation that's five days old and still be engaged in it. And you could go back to a five-day-old or a 10-day-old conversation and still engage with it, depending on the post, depending on what you're seeing and what people have responded. So there's a way in which it is not linear. In terms, The interaction doesn't have to be linear. It is you dip in and you dip out, which I think is, again, it's so interesting now that as I'm talking to you, as I'm thinking about it, if we can create those kind of spaces where people can dip in and dip out and they are not bound by you have to be here at this time or you miss out, but you can engage with this material or with this idea or with this conversation in the future. 
I think that also creates a lot of flexibility and a lot of connections with people because I go read a comment that someone has written five days ago and I say, oh, here is a like-minded person and I can network and connect with them right. and probably work on an idea with them that I hadn't thought of before. That's right. I mean, and that's that space of networking collaboration is fascinating about this, right. because as opposed to the fixed conference, which is in three weeks and three days, and I have four talks and no time to talk to people, and I have to go receptions or whatever it may be. If I can't afford to go this year, if I don't have the money, and for most of us, we lost our travel funds, we're yeah. paying for more of this out of our pocket, we did right. not get raises or promotions, and mm -hmm. if we did, they were nominal. If, right. and that's the equity piece to a lot of this, which is a lot of people can't go to that conference every year, or they can't go to two conferences, or they can't go to one now in this part of the country, and or they physically can't go because of the restrictions either of COVID or their own personal health. And that is not their fault. One of the interesting things I heard from people in African countries was, and other country was, Facebook is banned in some places. And mm -hmm. how do we replicate this in other platforms right. naturally, which is right. impossible to do? Well, so in terms, of, in terms of access and to be inclusive and equitable for this, a person has to have technology. Right. They have to have access to Facebook. Right. Right. And all those things are, are, you know, Facebook may be free, but the technology is not. The, the internet is not. Your phone or your right. computer is not. And what is interesting is And there how, is a cost to privacy too. So, yep, you know. There is. Yep. And, yep. And, and, and for instance, for some people, they do all this on their phone. They don't even own a computer, right? right? Whatever way they can join or contribute, they do. And some people, and that's the majority, never post, never react, never comment. They're just there to observe and learn or not. Right. Dip right. in learn something, dip out. Some people spend entire days on it um, doing stuff. And that's fine. As long as it is not to be profitable, as long as they're not taking up too much space from other people speaking or talking about issues, as long as they're not talking over people, that's fine. Right. Um, but some people use it as a place to tell jokes. Some people use it as a place to vent. Some people use it as a place to ask a tech question. And that's all fine. As long as it benefits the group, then like that's right. okay. And when it doesn't, Sometimes we have private offline conversations about comments or the like the moderators don't have public that, you know, maybe you are pushing this too hard or you are talking about this too much. There are a lot of people presenting really good opinions and experiences on this that you may not have experienced. And we encourage you to listen and to read those posts and maybe not respond in these kind of ways because it's not productive. Right. And so there is the visual side of all this. And there's also right. the behind the scenes of, side of a lot of this, too. Right. And everything that you're saying, again, for me, speaks to that moderation, the ability to facilitate conversations and facilitate conversation across differences to build similarities, to build learning. I think that it comes back down to that in terms of sustaining a community like this and building it. But you know what? You know what a challenge with that is? Mm -hmm. Is that most people, and I don't fault them because I'm the same way, mm -hmm. don't know how to use Facebook just like they know 1% of how to use Microsoft Word. Right. Right? And so right. They, they don't understand, and I had to teach myself, they don't understand how to, for instance, if they see something, how to report something. Right? right. And so one of the hardest things with moderation is moderators never see it. So I can tell you over the past couple of years, there have been hundreds of thousands of posts mm -hmm. and comments and millions of reactions unless someone literally selects the, the report function as a general function or they, they report it based on a rule, moderators never see it. And so there are all sorts of things that folks don't report because they don't know how to, but I don't mm -hmm. fault them. And mm -hmm. there are all, all sorts of conversations that could be productive, but that then go sideways and not be productive that people right. don't see. So they're also, here's the thing, I, here's, I know what I know, I know what I don't know. And within this space, I don't know what I don't know yes. because of quantity over potentially quality of comments and posts and reactions. Right. And so I may never know some things that made people leave the site unless they told me, unless they emailed me, unless they DM'd me or one of the right. other moderators or one of the other leaders of the group. And so there's right. all sorts of things. People are like, well, why didn't you do anything? We never saw it. 
right? We, have, we, we literally had to go search for it and we find it. And you're like, oh, what do you mean you've been talking about this for two days? And right. no, no one reported this, but everyone was rightfully upset about it. I don't want to put the blame on, on anyone, but part of it is it's one of those see something, say something, you know, conversations. Mm-hmm. That's one thing that's actually, I, I think that's one of the things that actually has hurt the collective over time was there are all sorts of things that moderators weren't aware of that we should have been aware of that we could have helped earlier on in ways that are more productive and it could have helped the group benefit of it. But it's volunteering, right? You're doing this on your extra time, on your own time. Um, You're not getting paid for it. And I think it goes back to, you have the rules when you join the group, be respectful. This is, you know, you lay out the space, the expectations for the space. But then there's also the expectations for technology, right? And a lot yes. of times we, we miss that in terms of this is what you do when X thing happens. This is what you do when Y things happen, which is, again, the same issue in higher ed too. What do you do when? And then we come to this group. What do you do when? And so I think it's just mimicking the same issues and we just need to you know, lay that out more explicitly somewhere, easily accessible somewhere. That um, is an amazing parallel because you are a hundred percent right. And, and, and that's one of the things I've thought about this summer is how do we reeducate the group? Do we need to change the rules? Mm-hmm. Do we need to be more inclusive to the degree we can across, you know, those who could be identified as leaders within it, those who are moderators within it, and more expansive in our way of making sure people are heard and people can have productive conversations in those ways. But it's the same thing, right? Mm-hmm. Should there be a part of the join the group of not right. just answer these questions and here are the rules of here's how the group works. And here's what to do. Like when you see something, here's what you do. Here's how you say something. Sure. Um, you know, having that also be part of it. So I want to just circle back really quickly to one last thing. When you talked about students, and this is a space for primarily for faculty staff, like for higher ed, for the whole higher ed community. Um, and you talked earlier about how there are some folks who talk about students in the group and then how the moderators have had to intervene and say, we, this is not a space for venting or shaming and blaming. Um, this yeah. is a space for learning. When you have felt othered in a community, whether you're a student, whether you're a faculty member, whatever, when you f- have felt that, what would you say to people who want to leave? What reasons would you offer them to stay in community with each other? So that's a really interesting and challenging question. Mm-hmm. And it's the same reason people leave their academic associations mm-hmm. and make new ones right? or splinter off and have other ones is, right. is where does the burden fall? Right. And who's responsible for either improving a group? The community. Yep. Right, or itself or, or starting your own. Right. And there've been a lot of people over the time, more in the beginning, who have posted why they're leaving. That's fine. And a lot of people would attack them of like, you can go, whatever reason, yada, yada. That's fine. It's your choice, right? Right. Um, and I'm not mad at anyone who wants to leave or participate, but it's your choice. This is all a choice. This is all right. optional, right? right? And in terms of people's time, this is all volunteerism, right? right? In terms of it's another way for higher education, we do something for free, right. um, which is a, a common theme in all of this. <laughs> um, but People need to make the choice that's best for them. Right. And I think it comes back to that. And sometimes what's best for you is to leave a community. And sometimes what's best for you or others who may be like you or not like you is to stay in a community. And it's, it's to the degree that, you know, in a person's choice like that, how much energy do you have? And how long do you want to do this? And right. what impact do you think you'll have? Um, right. And the, in- Those are the some impact. Great questions, yeah, to be asking of yourself. Right, and so, and, and here's the thing with that. Sometimes the biggest impact is you leaving, and people know you've left, right? right. And you say why you left, and right. maybe other people should go with you, and that's okay. Right. Right. And so within this space, there have been people who left the group, but as part of leaving the group, they wanted to start their own group. Right. And. I've supported them. You can post the link. You can post the group, whatever you, we just want to talk about this small thing right here. Perfect. I hope your group's successful. This group does this. Your group does that. 
You can be in either group. You can just go to that group. Anyone wants to go, that's fine. But yeah. I think a lot of this, it goes back to just the general experience of higher education is what is the best thing for you to do? Right. right. Where is your energy, your sustainability? Where is your wellness in this? Is it better for you to go? Is it better for you to stay and, and lean in and improve things or change things or encourage others to think differently? And then as with anything, is it what cost? Right. right. For you, you professionally, for you personally, we always have to keep that in mind. Right. Which is which is yeah. part of the reason why a lot of people wanted this private and to have those conversations, start a private group, have those conversations, mm-hmm. pick right. up a phone, have those phone calls. That's fine. But to lean into the fact that nothing with data and software in the Internet is ever private. Right. Anything could be taken as a screenshot and sent to your dean. It could be sent to the professor you are, you are anonymously talking about, right? It right. could be anything. So you need to reconsider how you have those conversations publicly or privately. And, right. and then again, that is your choice as a professional. Yeah. yeah. Thank you for those points, because I think those questions, a lot of times we, we just jump in or make an emotional decision without intellectually thinking through what do I get out of this? How much can I offer? And so so I love that you're centering, think through those things before making a decision or make a decision and then think through those things and reconsider your decision. So that's a great point. Thank you. I just have two more really quick questions. So one is if you're in a group, at least with, with this group, mm-hmm. have people wanted to study when you talked about your interest in communities of practice and that's your research area and social learning and stuff like that? Have people wanted to study when a group works really well or something's working and you want to replicate it or you want to study its efficacy or study like what's working really well that I can take and, you know, bring best practices or whatever. Have people wanted to study it or what would you say to people who want to learn from the group dynamics or build similar group dynamics or models of ways of being? For those who want to study um, whether it's virtual learning spaces and communities or, in, or personal, um, jokingly, but truthfully, I'd say first, get an IRB. Um, right. And second is, is do it. There have been a lot of graduate students who've approached us about studying the group. Mm-hmm. And we have let everyone do it who's wanted to do it. Um, right. it's, about, it's about the flip side of those in a group wanting to participate within the studies. And so, um, but no, I encourage the studying of social learning spaces like this. I personally have not done it because I haven't had time to. I've always been curious about um, facets of it. But part of that is I've encouraged other people to study it who've wanted to. That's kind of one thing I think we should do more moving forward is, is what offerings or allowances do we have for people who do want to study groups like this or do want to talk about or have talks about stuff like this is um, to what degree us as researchers are willing to participate in those things um, that we should. But to my, I I have not seen any outcomes of any IRB calls or proposals uh, for participants um, from this group specifically yet. There could be, but I I have not seen those. I can say that over the two years, there's probably been four or five who's wanted to. Um, And those, and and as we know how long research takes and how many studies we work on at the same time, there could be great data out there. Um, There could be good presentations at conferences already out there. Um, I I just, I personally am not aware of those yet. My last question to you is, what types of leadership does a community need to sustain itself? What advice would you give people in terms of setting a group like this or any other group, what advice would you give them in terms of how it should be facilitated, directed? I think that's a great question um, because I think the way that I originally set it up and how it's changed over time needs to be considered. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that leadership should be potentially elected mm-hmm. uh, or chosen. Um, I think it should be representative of a variety of identities across race, gender, um, orientation, ability, and the like, mm-hmm. uh, in consideration. Mm-hmm. I think the structure of it needs to make sense for whatever the mission or the goal of it is. To what degree there is governance in organization, to what degree there are those who have particular roles or functions within it. 
as mm-hmm. opposed to which may be more, you know, as a restaurant example, front of the house versus back of the house kind of right. stuff. Um, because there's all sorts of stuff in terms of what goes on. And oftentimes in a group like this, you only see moderation as opposed to, um, there could be leadership around the offerings of, you know, talks or seminars or free webinars or professional development. And, and then, but to whom is that for and for what purpose and does it meet the needs of the organization? Right. right. And so, and that's right. something that, that should be explored. And that's something I personally want to explore more with this group this summer. Mm-hmm. Of So it's been two years and where do we want to be? And to what degree you want to participate? Where should we go um, with this? And do you want to have, you know, book clubs? Do you want to have registrars retreats and like registrars talk about issues together do you want to have um, more just like lecture-based series or panels on things around what topics and for what needs and right so it's almost like building a beyond facebook group professional community almost which has multiple learning professional development opportunities so to speak I think there are several things to consider about leadership of organizations. One is what structure and what purpose best meets the needs of that organization. Mm-hmm. How many people should be involved? At what level should they be involved? And for what purposes? Um, do they need to be experts or do they need to be able to or have a willingness to learn the, in the position? Mm-hmm. And also for how long? Because there is time in this, there is energy in this, and one has to consider all those things for their own personal and professional growth and wellness. Um, So I think really all those things need to be considered, Um, but also is the group of leaders in whatever structure is created, is there diversity among the people? Um, is there are there different voices and experiences and stories and counter stories for which are representative for a powerful but also um, equitable and, and empathetic purpose of leadership? Um, I think all those things really matter for the health of an organization for themselves currently, but also where they want to be in the future. Um, so I think I think there's a lot of stuff to consider. I would go back to some of those indicators first. And I, I, I want to go back to what you said. Someone still has to carry the mantle, right? So if there is a purpose and if there is a goal, the load may be with someone for certain amounts of time and we need to be willing to take on that and move the group forward towards the goal, move the needle, and then maybe pass on the baton while we recuperate or we rebuild, re-energize our batteries, recharge our batteries and then come back in. So there is an ebb and flow in terms of how we engage group community building process. So long as we're able to sustain it, sometimes we are voluntold, sometimes we take it on. But keeping in mind, again, the point that you made around equity, around who usually has to carry this burden and how can we lighten the load and how can we do what our part is to make sure that we can move things forward. So I really appreciate your time, John. I appreciate the insights that you've shared. I think what stood out if I were to pick out a few things that stood out for me in this conversation. One is the importance of communication, the importance of privacy or the lack thereof, private communication, the responsibility that brings for everyone to communicate in a respectful, empathetic way, Uh, the importance of moderation, uh, the importance of knowing how to use a tool or a technology well so that people know what to do in the event of in the rare occasions because we never necessarily prepared for that. Uh, Having common ground rules and expectations that people follow, having a common understanding of the purpose of the group, allowing the group to evolve and always checking in whether this group needs to be in existence or do we need to rethink its purpose. You brought up the big important point about power, right? And how spaces like social media or spaces like this, whether you use Facebook or Mighty Networks or some other platform or tool, Slack, whatever it may be, but how you can have communication with each other, irrespective of power, position, pedigree, and learn from differences so that we can build on our similarities. So I want to end on that wonderful point that you made. Thank you again for your commitment to equity and for commitment to building community. Thank you. I really appreciate you inviting me. 
um, but also I am representing a very large organization for which I'm just one small part. Um, but thank you, thank you for having me today. Pedagogo, brought to you by ExamSoft, the digital assessment solution that gives you actionable data for improved learning outcomes. When assessment matters, ExamSoft has you covered. This podcast was produced by Divya Beta and the ExamSoft team. Audio engineering and editing by Adam Karsten and the A2K Productions crew. This podcast is intended as a public service for entertainment and educational purposes only and is not a legal interpretation nor statement of ExamSoft policy, products, or services. The views and opinions expressed by the hosts or guests of this show are their own and do not necessarily reflect the views of ExamSoft or any of its officials, nor does any appearance on this program imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. Additionally, reference to any specific product, service, or entity does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation by ExamSoft. This podcast is the property of ExamSoft Worldwide LLC and it's protected under U.S. and international copyright and trademark laws. No other use, including without limitation, reproduction, retransmission, or editing of this podcast may be made without the prior written permission of ExamSoft.